Welcome to Armbrand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the podcast um, dedicated to a simple promise that everything is a brand today. Every person, every athlete, every celebrity, every politician, every movement, every political party is a brand. That we do two things on the show. We do our brands of the week, um, where we talk about which brands are up, which brands are down, and we drop those on Tuesday. On Thursdays, today, we do our big interview, and this week it's John Brennan. John Brennan, uh, former head of the CIA, uh, worked for numerous presidents, outspoken, anti-Trumper, got a lot to say, a lot of warnings for us about what's going on in the world. Here's my interview with John Brennan. I am thrilled with today's guest. Um, he's he's a, uh, I would say a national icon, but he's a, close to a national icon. <laughs> he's a former director of the CIA. Um, he's His new book is out in paperback, his most recent book, Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. Um he serves as a national security, senior national security and intelligence analyst for NBC and MSNBC and NBC News. Uh, Director Brennan, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for the invitation, Don. I look forward to the conversation. So what I was most taken with with your book is is the early years, the easy rider years. Uh, I, I've just <laughs> known you as as director of the CIA, as a citizen of this country, and as, as, a, as a fellow colleague on MSNBC. But you with an earring, riding a motorcycle, uh, voting communist in 1976, <laughs> ear, earring. I mean, not quite that you're, this was more of your father's John Brennan. <laughs> well, we've each had uh, chapters in our own lives. And so I've gone through several chapters in my life growing up in New Jersey in Hudson County. Uh, very early on, I wanted to become the first American Pope. I was determined to become a priest first and then make it up to the highest ranks of the, of the Catholic hierarchy. And then I, I changed a bit and grew my hair long, got an earring, rode a motorcycle, uh, went around the world surfing and just, again, trying to understand as much as I could about this big, large, wonderful world of ours. Uh, when I was uh, young and uh, basically very carefree and uh, was able to uh, explore and experiment, which is what I did. The thing that also took me, and I, I take me back there, that you as a, a Catholic upbringing, how your life or your perspective of Catholicism and things changed when you went to see a clockwork orange. <laughs> you did read that, the book. I'm a, uh, yeah. <laughs> Refreshing. Yeah, I was a sophomore in high school, and uh, we had it, we had some Christian brothers who were rather progressive. And so one of our brothers, uh, Brother Richard Green, uh, took my class over to New York to see that dystopian film, A Clockwork Orange, and it was uh, X-rated. Um, I'm not sure if I told my parents at the time which movie we were going to see, but I think they were confident that if I was going over to New York with a Christian brother, it was okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, through my high school years, um, I started to really just maybe question some of the basic uh, tenets, maybe of my faith uh, and my my ambition to become a, a priest. Uh, and uh, so, whether it was Clockwork Orange or some other things that I I did, uh, and uh, I wound up going to Fordham University over in New York. Um, so I stayed local, but. Uh, yeah, there were a number of experiences that I had at a young age that really, I think, stimulated an intellectual curiosity in me about um, society, about people, <laughs> what makes them tick. Uh, and so uh, Clockwork Orange was a, was a very memorable uh, film uh, because of uh, some of the things that were included in that. I hear you. And take me that day, you're sitting on the bus and you see an ad. I wasn't quite sure whether you saw an ad on a newspaper or outside. You see an ad for the CIA. Just take me back to that moment because that, that's just like, that's certainly something that was not on your mind and something hit a nerve. 
Yeah, well, when I went to Fordham University, I first was involved in pre-law. I was thinking about going to law school, uh, but then I got turned off to the idea of becoming a corporate lawyer in New York. Um, in my junior year uh, in college, uh, I went to the American University in Cairo, uh, where I first was introduced to the Middle East, uh, learned some Arabic, and uh, then had a, a curiosity for uh, all of the world's uh, wonders. And so by the time I was a senior in Fordham, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I was applying to some graduate schools, but I also saw an ad in the New York Times one morning when I was taking the bus over to the city. And the New York Times basically said, we're looking for some people to uh, be part of the CIA team. Uh, so I, I sent in my rather brief resume at the time, uh, but I did have some overseas experience. I did have some Arabic. Mm -hmm. I went in for an interview in New York City to a CIA recruiter. He gave me an application and he said, well, if you decide to go to graduate school, uh, fill this application in when you're about a, a year away from graduating and we'll see what we can, what we can do. Uh, so I subsequently went down to the University of Texas at Austin, enrolled in the doctoral program in Middle East Studies and government. Uh, but at the end of a, a year, a year and a half or so, I started to yearn for getting going on my professional career outside of academia. And so I filled in that application. I came up to the DC area, went through uh, several days of, of tests and polygraphs and other things. And uh, thankfully, the CI was willing to, to take a chance of me and hired me. And this was back in August of 1980. Yeah. And you were pleasantly surprised because in 76, as a little bit of a protest to the partisanship of politics post Watergate, you voted for the uh, communist candidate. And you were quite taken back and energized that that was not a deterrent to the CIA. Yeah, in 1976, I was a 21-year-old, my first time voting in a presidential election, a great privilege. But when I went into the voting booth, I didn't know who I was going to vote for. As you pointed out, I think I was already upset with partisan politics, but I did have a rebellious streak in me. And this was you know, after the Vietnam years and other things. And so I decided when I went into that voting booth to flip the lever for Gus Hall, who was the Communist Party candidate at the time. I remember and that. when I went for the CIA interview uh, and was talking to the polygrapher, when he asked me the question of, have I ever belonged to a subversive organization or tried to undermine the U.S. government? My, my Catholic guilt <laughs> came to the fore right away. And I said, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I told him exactly uh, that I had voted for Gus Hall. And to his great credit and to the agency's credit, they said that that vote of yours is your solemn right as a U.S. citizen. And uh, it in no way affects your eligibility for consideration for employment at the CIA. And so despite the CIA's you know, controversial record, and there were things about the CIA that I didn't like and wasn't looking forward to participating in at all, but I was heartened by the uh, attitude of that polygrapher who recognized that despite a, a vote by a 21-year-old for Gus Hall, the Communist Party candidate, uh, it didn't detract from from my eligibility. Uh, so I just made me feel good about the CIA at that time. As a guy who grew up in the analytical ranks and obviously went all the way to the top and served uh, several presidents, what is it about the, the agency that you look back on and say to yourself, I don't think the average person understands how great the agency is because of X. And on the flip side of that, I don't know if the average person is as worried as they should be because the agency is X. I'm kind of trying to trying to trying to trying to get the best news and the worst news there. That's a tough one. Well, in terms of the the best news, um, I have worked with some tremendously dedicated and selfless Americans, women and men, throughout the course of my career, 
who really have made tremendous sacrifices, and their families have as well, as they have served overseas around the globe, uh, trying to understand the nature and the extent of the threats to our national security. And they do some very, very courageous and brave things, not just serving in war zones, whether it be Afghanistan, Iraq, or other places, but also operating behind uh, our adversaries' borders so that they can, in fact, acquire the types of secrets that we need in order to understand the nature of the threats to us. And so uh, most of those exploits and those successes will never be known by the average American. Uh, but it truly was an honor and a privilege to be serving with so many individuals who were, were really dedicating their lives to keeping this country safe. I think one of the reasons why I was attracted to the CIA, I think many others were as well. Uh, I'm the son of an immigrant, and my, my father, who came to this country at 28 years old, always impressed upon myself and my siblings what a privilege it is to be an American citizen. And we were born American citizens. And my father pointed out how many people around the globe struggle their entire lives to come to the United States, the great land of, of opportunity. And he told us never to take our citizenship for granted. And so therefore, a lot of people at the CIA feel the same way, native born and others who just believe that this country is worth giving back to and not just taking from. So I, I do think that there are so many things that uh, CIA officers have done preventing uh, horrific terrorist attacks um, around the globe, uh, helping to um, erode the foundations of the Soviet Union, um, and uh, addressing the, the variety of threats that we face uh, on a daily basis around the around the world. On the other side, um, I think uh, th there is such a important responsibility that falls to the leadership of the intelligence community, whether it be the CIA or the NSA or the intelligence community overall, that um, it is a, a very powerful intelligence community with tremendous capabilities. Um, and as long as they are being directed and overseen and managed in, in, a, in a manner that is appropriate and consistent with not only our legal authorities, but also our values, I think we're all in good standing as far as what the CIA does. But I think we have seen in the re recent past that individuals who are more determined to be loyal to a president who uh, I thought did not live up to his responsibilities of the office, that intelligence community, law enforcement, whatever else can be exploited and manipulated in order to advance political, partisan, personal agendas. And one of the things that I always impressed upon uh, those CIA employees that I administered the oath of office to is they, they certainly can have partisan sentiments and feelings, um, but as soon as they come into CIA and they carry out their responsibilities, they have to do so in a completely apolitical, nonpartisan manner because the American people really depend on them to ensure that the, uh, our institutions of governance are going to remain strong, irrespective of efforts on the part of some craven and corrupt politicians to do the exact opposite. And to that point, you open the book and you, you talk about the emotions you felt when you president, uh, president elect Trump was standing in front of the memorial, the, the, all of the fallen heroes there and talking about crowd sizes. Take, take me in inside you at that moment as you're listening to that. Yeah. Um, I, I served the entire Obama administration. The first, uh, four and a half years or so I was working at the white house as president Obama's Homeland security advisor and, Counterterrorism advisor. Um, and then I became the director of CIA during his second term. 
But I, I left office on noon of January 20th of 2017, as soon as Donald Trump was inaugurated uh, as president. Well, it was the following day when Donald Trump decided to go to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, where he stood uh, in front of that hollowed wall, as you said, that showed all of those stars that represented the uh, CIA officers who gave, uh, paid the ultimate uh, sacrifice, uh, last measure of devotion, as we say, to this country. And he started to uh, talk about um, the size of the his inaugural crowd, and he was telling everybody there, I'm sure that they voted for him. And it, was, it became a political rally for him. And I felt that he was really desecrating that uh, Memorial Wall. And so I was... I was at my local gym on the stationary bike and and watching this on television, and I was just fuming, and I received a number of text messages and calls from former and even current CIA officers who were just appalled at what Donald Trump was doing. Uh, And so, but it was consistent with the way he disparaged uh, the intelligence profession even before he was elected president, before he was inaugurated. And I think it just got worse over time. So I think uh, what he did at that, uh, in that lobby, CIA lobby, that iconic lobby in, in that wall, Memorial Wall, was um, consistent, again, with the, the lack of not just decorum, but the lack of respect that he uh, showed to uh, the intelligence professionals, especially those who sacrificed their lives for our country. Well, he doesn't show much respect to anything other than himself, and he disrespects himself every day in another one form or another. Before we get to some current events and a lot more on, on Trump and, and a lot more on what's behind the title of the book, I used to run an ad agency, and I'd get to work every day, and I would have my kind of my daily review of all our different accounts, okay? Burger King was this, this was the, you know. Take me through your, basically, your client list is the world or, or the, the countries of the world or the problems of the world. Every day, are you getting like, okay, Pakistan, here's the update. How do you, how does, how does the director get his arms around on any given day the, the problems, the, the crises, the state of the art of the various international quagmires that we're dealing with every single day? What form well, does that I come in? I had the benefit of, by the time I became CIA director, I had already served about 30 years in national security and in the intelligence world. So I was quite familiar with a lot of the challenges that we faced around the globe. And I also had met a lot of our liaison partners around uh, the globe. Uh, so when I got to CIA, it wasn't as though I was being parachuted into a, a foreign Sure, of course. Right, 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 right. I was being parachuted into No, I'm just talking about on a day-to-day community. basis, on a day-to-day basis, the, the job, you know, the basic, how it plays out. Yeah, well, I used to go to my local gym, um, get there before it opened up at six o'clock. And so from six to seven, I would just, you know, lift weights, work out. Mainly it was for mental preparation to sure. deal with the day, but I want to be alone with my thoughts and think through exactly what I needed to accomplish that day, where I was in my you know, sort of tenure. Uh, but then I would get into my vehicle and that I would be driven to CIA headquarters. I would already have a, a book of material that would be awaiting me in the seat. And so I would be reading through the President's Daily Brief and the overnight reports that came in and some of them from you know CIA offices overseas or embassies. And by the time that I would get into my office and t- after taking a shower, uh, I would have uh, meetings with senior staff. Uh, sometimes it was to get the latest uh, analytic assessment that we were doing maybe on Russia, China, or somewhere else, uh, or to talk with some of my operations folks about uh, the latest challenges that we faced in different uh, parts of the world. 
and then usually I would be having a number of meetings downtown, whether it be in the White House Situation Room or meetings with the president. Uh, there were a lot of calls to my foreign counterparts, uh, particularly close to my, my British, you know, Canadian, Australian counterparts, as well as others. Uh, and then also meeting with the workforce, uh, trying to make sure that uh, I had visibility and was able to interact directly with them. The CIA is a large organization. I frequently talk to my people overseas on secure phones. Uh, so every day uh, was different. It was, it was a challenge, but that's what was energizing. I found that no matter what I had to do, you know, sometimes when I have to go down to Congress and deal with some of, you know, the folks down there, the politicians, you know, it was a bit uh, frustrating to me. Um, but uh, overall, I mean, every day was was something new and different, uh, whether it was dealing with the workforce, whether it was dealing with the rest of the national security agencies, the White House or, or my foreign counterparts. I frequently would travel as well and try to take trips overseas to see our people, to talk to my counterparts, talk to foreign leaders. Uh, to make sure that uh, I had a good appreciation for, you know, what the lay of the land uh, looked like. So it was uh, those four years uh, as director, you know, just flew by. It's hard to, for me to believe that I've been out for you know almost six years now. Pre-director in 2011, you were in the Situation Room uh, the night uh, we we took out Osama bin Laden. You had said that Obama's call was the gutsiest call you had ever seen. Why why was that? Well, I was his counterterrorism advisor at the White House. And so in the months leading up to that um, very famous uh, assault on the compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, I could see the intelligence um, forming in terms of the fidelity we had. But despite the best efforts of our intelligence community, uh, CIA and others, uh, there was no certainty that uh, that was bin Laden at that compound. You know, he was trying to protect his identity. Sure. And so we had little, you know, snippets of, of intelligence. And uh, President Obama uh, knew, and certainly his political advisors knew, that if he authorized this helicopter assault and either bin Laden wasn't there or those helicopters were shot down or, you know, our, our, our SEALs and special forces operators, you know, were killed, it would have been devastating, devastating to the country, devastating to President Obama personally, as well as politically. And this was the year before the, 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 his uh, re-election. So um, it, it was a very gutsy call to authorize it. Um, the most uh, challenging part I felt from the very beginning was I knew we have such terrific special forces, U.S. military, and they practiced and they went through all the dress rehearsals for this. And I knew they were going to be able to get onto the compound. But once they were on the compound and they were there for well, 45, 60 minutes or whatever else, First, you know, they killed bin Laden and they were taking all the computers and documents and other things. The Pakistanis were quite aware that something was going down in Abbottabad. Uh, their military forces were put on alert. Their air defenses came up. They had scrambled some fighters. And it was a very treacherous flight back into Afghanistan. It was about 90 minutes or so. And it was uh, very dark over mountainous terrain. Um, and I was very concerned that even though we were confident that we got bin Laden, if one of those helicopters was shot down and a dozen or two dozen of those assaulters were killed, it, it again, it would have diminished significantly the success of that mission. Sure, of course. Uh, and so, and President Obama is somebody who really understands all the different aspects of these types of operations. So he had... You know, a bit briefed on all the different parts of it. He knew it was going to be very risky, 
But he said that the American people deserved to ensure that there was going to be justice uh, for the 9-11 attacks. So uh, it, it was a political risk, um, but also he knew that he was going to be putting the lives of these servicemen members um, on the line here. But uh, that's why I give him a, a lot of credit. Uh, he had uh, a steely confidence uh, when he made the decision, as well as on the day that was taking place. And I was just uh, honored to be part of that that team. Let's move to present day. Uh, you've been one of the most outspoken critics, as I have, of Donald Trump. We come at it from two ways. I come at it as a guy who's known him for years and has always been aware of what he's capable of. I, I, I was the first guy to say he's not going to leave office uh, if he if he gets voted out. He's going to try and start a civil war. I just I know this guy. I mean, I I, I have a sense of him. And you you've always come at it from a uh, civil service and understanding the stakes and understanding the things he's desecrating, to use your words. And how did we get here that, forget the first term, that he could have been elected because a lot of people said, well, Hillary Clinton's not a good candidate and I'll take a flyer on this guy and maybe he's just using rhetoric. But after four years, 40% of this country raised their hand and said, thumbs up, give me some more of that. As a guy who has spent his life in public service defending democracy, please explain that to me as a behaviorist, as an analyst, any way you come at it. Yeah, it is still a bit shocking that what we're seeing here in the United States is what I've seen in many other countries of the world, where democratic societies are corroded by individuals who are able to exploit and take advantage of the freedoms and liberties in a, in a country. So they manipulate elections, they delegitimize uh, the, the political opposition, uh, try to control the media, uh, control the, the security the services, intelligence services, and others. It, it really is the authoritarian playbook. But also I think it reflects a growing uh, global phenomenon of, of nativism that exists in many countries that is uh, as a result of, of globalization and migration uh, that's taking place. I think a lot of people who are part of the traditional elements of society really are feeling quite <laughs> xenophobic and are, are feel as though that their way of life is being threatened. Mm -hmm. And they start to really question, you know, the way that this globalized world is, is evolving. And unfortunately, there are demagogues and individuals like Donald Trump, as well as, you know, sad to say, a lot of you know, members of the Republican Party these days who are playing on those fears and the concerns and legitimate concerns of people. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in the Midwest and, and you, you live in a small town and for many, many years, your parents and grandparents relied on that sure. factory, uh, factory that was producing something and all of a sudden it, that factory closes because it's being outsourced, there's a real resentment that, that builds up. And yes. Rather than trying to address these concerns, I think in a very honest and legitimate fashion, I think Donald Trump and others were pouring fuel on the, those fires of fear and uh, directing their animosity and animus toward those foreign elements and, and others. So it, it, it is unfortunate. Um, and I do think the Republican Party in particular sees that the demographics of this country are very much not in their favor as they go, go forward. And so, um, you know, talking about how you know our borders are porous. Yes, we do have a border challenge in terms of border security. But again, rather than try to address it in a very straightforward and a practical way, I do think so many of these politicians, 
here, but also you look in, in other countries of the world. We look at what in France, uh, Marine Le Pen, a, a far-right fringe extremist uh, who garnered like close to 40% or so of the public, sure. uh, popular vote in the last presidential election. Look what's happening in Italy right now with Maloney, Absolutely. Uh, who is also a, seems to be a descendant of the, the Mussolini's, you know, Mussolini uh, fascist school party. Of thought, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I think there's this right wing shift among those who are trying to band together to oppose what I think is part of the natural evolution of societies in this globalized world, uh, yeah. which I think again so many politicians are now taking advantage of and, and exploiting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, what I what's so disturbing to me is what I'll call uh, so many Americans naive entitlement with democracy. And what I mean by that is that they take it for granted at this point. And that, that, that there's, I just saw, I read a, study, a, a poll that just blew me away that one in three Americans would rather have an, in effect, would rather have an effective or as they see strong unelected leader than an ineffective, less strong elected leader. In other words, democracy is in play. It's one in, it's one in three Americans. And the amount of people I talk to, also young people, who don't really clearly comprehend that their great-grandparents died for this, and what can happen when a democracy goes away. When did such a big chunk of this country become so ungrateful and unenamored with what democracy is and not understanding what we would have if we didn't have it? Yeah, I think, you know, we're living through it right now in a way that we find almost incomprehensible. But I think America's history, it, it, America's history is, unfortunately, I think replete with uh, examples uh, throughout the course of our history of times when these political parties and politicians were able to galvanize support to oppose uh, progress, to oppose maybe a certain class of, of immigrants and, and others. And um, those were um, very anti-democratic um, forces and sentiments uh, because people didn't want to respect the, those foundations of democracy. <laughs> you know, it's the rule of the majority, but it's to respect the rights of the minority. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, there are too many individuals who believe that they want to be able to take advantage of, of the opportunities here. Um, and they want to um, reduce the opportunities for others to to make decisions or for elections to come out in a way that that they oppose, which is totally antithetical to our whole you know concept of of democracy here. Uh, and so I think there's just a lot of individuals. Again, it's it's based I think on fear, on anger, um, on on being um, riled up uh, by these politicians who present falsehoods. I mean, we haven't talked about January 6th, the assault in the Capitol, the way that, you know, politicians were able to put out that clarion call for individuals to, to save, you know, democracy. It's, it's, it's rather ironic that they're, they're using that concept of saving de democracy as they undermine it. Um, but it's, it is, uh, I think, just a, a increasing national and global phenomenon that parties, individuals, and communities are going to do what they can to resist uh, the, the some social advancements, and also to protect uh, their own equities at the cost and at the expense of of others. 
Are you, this is going to be a, a sober question. Are you surprised we haven't had more domestic terror in the front? We obviously know what's going on within this country now and how uh, the current leaders of the agencies have said that the, the biggest threat is from within. Are you surprised we haven't had even more? Well, um, again, our history has had examples of, you know, demonstrations, riots, protests, and other things. Um, I, I think it also, the fact that we haven't had more reflects the, the continued strength. Sometimes it's, it seems, you know, it's below the surface, but the strength of our, of our country's institutions and practices and processes, um, and people will talk, you know, violence and some people opt for it. Um, and I think that the, the circle of folks who are angry is a large circle. The, the folks who are encouraging violence is maybe a smaller circle and the ones who actually will take up arms is smaller still, thankfully. Um, and I, I do think that um, despite Trump's best efforts during his administration, those institutions of governance, um, law enforcement and others, uh, both at the national and the state and local levels were able to hold. And we, we do rely on that, that law and order and the ability for, for our, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> our system of government to be able to pr prevail and to, I think it is a deterrent to a lot of folks to, to pick up arms because sometimes the wheels of justice grind very slowly, but they do grind. And we see now that the people who went, you know, and assaulted the Capitol are being given some, you know, some of them very stiff prison sentences. Yes. So I'd like to think that although that, you know, that arc of history sometimes goes up and down, I think the trajectory is, is still positive, uh, despite the fact that, you know, Donald Trump has done his best to, to undermine it. I just want to move outside uh, domestic issues. You probably, I'm going to guess, spent more time analyzing or dealing with Vladimir Putin and things that, as related to him in your career as any other individual outside this country. I would, as, as one of our, if not our main geopolitical adversary over the years. And I read something in the Financial Times the other day that was very frightening to me. And it was, it was a quote from a, uh, a nationalist Russian tycoon in an interview was Konstantin Malafayev. And he said, the whole world should be praying for Russia's victory because there are only two ways this can end. Of course, this is with Ukraine. Either Russia wins or a nuclear apocalypse. If we don't win, we will have to use nuclear weapons because we can't lose. Does anyone think Russia will accept defeat and not use its nuclear arsenal? I'd love you to react to that. Well, I'm still hoping against hope that you know we're not going to see the use of any type of nuclear weapons, tactical or otherwise. And and I do think right now President Biden and NATO allies have done a good job of you know pushing back against the Russians and pushing the envelope without leading to a, a spiraling escalation that could in fact lead to that. But what does uh, Russia losing the war mean? Um, well, I, I do think that right now the momentum is on the Ukrainian side and Russia is facing setback after setback, certainly on the battlefields in Ukraine, but also on the international stage as far as China and India and other countries criticizing what's going on in Ukraine. So he's losing yeah. the support from them. But I think more fundamentally, what's happening internally inside of Russia, where there is growing opposition to this partial mobilization, as well as just the, the status of the war. So um, I, I do believe that uh, it's, it's worrisome when, when Putin runs out of options to turn the tide 
because, you know, as an authoritarian, as an autocrat, you know, he doesn't want to be embarrassed. He wants to prevail. Uh, that's been his, his lifelong journey. Uh, but at the same time, um, I think Russia can lose the conventional war in Ukraine. There might be a, uh, a frozen conflict, you know, with just the way he, they controlled the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, for, you know, eight years or so. Uh, we could have a, a bit of a stalemate there. I don't think it necessarily has to go into this escalatory spiral. Um, and I, I do think the use of nuclear weapons by uh, Russia would bring devastating and catastrophic consequences to, to Russia. And I think Putin realizes that. But what might he do if he's really desperate and he sees the writing on the wall that he's going to lose? And is he going to try to exact revenge on the country that really led to his downfall? I'd like to think not. I'd like to think that there are people around him in the Kremlin, uh, even though they are in the accountability bucket with Putin for this horrific war. Uh, I'd like to think that you know they have to be thinking about their their families as well. Uh, and maybe, just maybe, there will be some type of move against Putin uh, prior to that uh, decision. Uh, he cannot just push the button and make the tactical nukes go. There would have sure. to be a chain of command. Right. And again, I'd like to think that there are going to be some Russians who are going to see just the how how devastating that would be to to their country and and to their their families. We obviously see Putin on the news all the time, and we see the images of him, and we see you you've had a little bit more of an X-ray into the man, obviously over the year through all the intelligence and analytics. Anything that jumps out at you about him as a human being? Forget the things we know about what he's done in the world, but just that just kind of made you scratch your head and go, "Oh, I, I understand this guy a little bit more." Well, you know, we have had some recent experience with other narcissists <laughs> that view <laughs> oh, the yes. world, you know, through a very right. unique and personal prism, um, and they evaluate and they calculate everything according to that prism. Uh, I do think that. Uh, he, as he has said publicly, he feels that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the, the greatest you know, problem of the 20th, you know, 20th century, that it was a great embarrassment, uh, disappointment to him. And he's trying to you know, lead Russia back to greatness, uh, despite the, his inability to, to do so. I do think the last several years where he was very isolated as a result of COVID narrowed even more uh, that, uh, the prism. Uh, for him. Uh, he didn't have as many people coming in and talking with him. He didn't have as many of the advisors come in. And I, I think some of that isolation maybe led him to have these very grand ideas about what he could accomplish. You know, clearly, uh, Russian intelligence was very, very bad as far as you know, the Ukrainians uh, capitulating uh, quickly to the Russian forces. Um, his Russian advisors, military advisors, were, were wrong in terms of what the vaunted Russian military could do. Uh, so I, I think over the course of his, you know, 20 more years, 30 years of uh, upward ascendancy, he was growing in not only power, but also with a sense of what he could accomplish, these illusions of, of grandeur, and that there's no stopping him. I think the very similar journey for Donald Trump, yeah. who continued to rise up and felt as though he almost could do anything and get away with anything. And it's pretty typical of authoritarian leaders who want to amass more and more power as they go along. 
and feel as though they are invincible over time. And that usually is what leads to their downfall. They go beyond what their, their means will allow them to achieve. Director Brendan, you've been very generous with your time. The final question, I ask kind of everybody this. The premise of this podcast is that kind of everything today is a brand. You know, every politician, every institution, every political party, every product. And what's the John Brennan brand? Well, you know, for many years, I, uh, the brand was, you know, CIA. I was almost right. indistinguishable from the CIA brand. I think since I've left government service and I've been more outspoken and been involved in things, and in my, um, I put an epilogue in my uh, memoir, Undaunted, that entitled Truth Matters. And I really am very concerned about how insidious and harmful um, the propagation and dissemination of intentional falsehoods is to our country. And uh, we all make mistakes. We all have said things that, you know, we found out later that, you know, were not exactly true. But uh, the uh, the increasing um, use of mis- disinformation, disinformation is the intentional dissemination of, of falsehoods. The, that by p- politicians, I think, really is just so, so harmful to our, our national identity and brand. And so I'm trying to spend as much time as I can. I talk to a lot of universities and students, encourage them to give back to this great country, uh, sharing my experiences with them, uh, telling them never to take this country for granted, but also trying to encourage people to speak openly and honestly. Sometimes I overshare. The only reason why mm-hmm. people know that I voted for a communist in 1976 <laughs> was because I was uh, sure I was asked a question by Over-sharing. a young right. student for in a recruitment drive, um, whether her political activism on campus was going to uh, make her ineligible for CI employment. And that's why I gave the example of my vote for Gus Hall. So I, I, I do think that, and it may be a little strange that someone from CIA is trying to be as transparent and open and honest as possible. <laughs> Again, I make mistakes, uh, but I'm trying to, you know, live out this, this uh, last chapter, the most recent chapter of my life. Uh, giving back to the country, uh, encouraging young Americans to really be thinking through what it means to be an American and pushing back against those who um, dishonor uh, this country's uh, foundations and traditions. So in other words, that they said at the end of Superman, truth, justice in the American way. <laughs> okay. I'll just certainly take that, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do for a living. Hey, yes. man, I really appreciate it. It was such a real privilege to talk to you. And the book is uh, the, the paperback, which is out, Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. It is more timely than ever. Run out and get it. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Donnie. Enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed my interview with John Brennan. What a what a thoughtful guy, and we need more patriots like John Brennan. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anyplace else. We'll see you Tuesday for our Brands of the Week on On Brand, and have a great week. We'll see you next time on On Brand. Mm-hmm.